climate change, the impact of climate change is going to be incredibly expensive, especially if we can't stop it, right? And so governments are going to have to start making policies, whether we like it or not, whether industries like it or not, they're going to have to start doing more stuff to, to prepare for this. And that's what's going to drive the transition. That and just sort of, once you get over certain hurdles from a consumer standpoint, all of this stuff is just much more efficient and easier to deal with. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by your renewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 79 happening right now, and we're glad to have a, another great episode for you today. We've got none other than Mr. Lauren Steffi, longtime business and energy journalist here in the great city of Houston, as well as the state of Texas. And of course, he is also a University of Houston energy scholar. Uh, he writes for Forbes Magazine, Texas Monthly, and many other publications. We're going to get into some of what he's seen and what he's covering right now in the energy transition and some uh, very interesting thoughts on what needs to happen for both sides to come together in the energy transition. Maybe better question or maybe better yet, will they come together? We'll get to that here in just a little bit. But before we do that, let's welcome to the program Mrs. Ann Niemer to tell you what we do here at eRenewable. Hi, Ann Niemer here, co-founder and COO of eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know everyone has sustainability needs and wants. We want to help you reach your ESG goal. Our goal is to bring technology to the sustainability space by hosting real-time online auctions for both buyers and sellers. Our electronic management tool helps streamline the RFP process. Whether you need to procure energy or find an off-taker for a renewable project, our platform will provide pricing efficiencies to your organization. Our other projects include solar or battery storage development, renewable natural gas or responsibly sourced gas, LED lighting, and HVAC efficiency upgrades, or unbundled RECs or RSG certificates, all helping our customers reach their sustainability goals and meeting their ESG needs. Please visit our website at eRenew.net or call us at 1-866-ERENEW1. As always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Thank you so much for that, Mrs. Ann Niemer. Of course, don't forget, you can find out more about the company over at eRenew.net. Little tease, we've got a brand new website coming out, but stay tuned for that. We'll certainly keep you up to date on that to kick off the brand new year. But again, give us a follow on LinkedIn, eRenewable and the Green Insider Podcast. And of course, you can also follow us on Twitter as well, at eRenew2020. That's at eRenew2020. Give us a follow. You will be glad that you did. All right, let's get right down to the program. Mr. Lauren Steffi, like we said already, University of Houston Energy Scholar, uh, longtime energy journalist, business you name it he's done it five books as well just put out a brand new novel we'll talk a little bit about that at the end of the podcast as well but just a lot of great insight from Mr. Steffi on what's going on with the energy transition he's also got a new article that he just put out about net zero and just how realistic it is so without further ado please welcome to the program Mr. Lauren Steffi yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, I've been covering energy for the better part of 35 years. And one of the things that I think is really interesting right now is that the renewable push is being driven by things other than market forces, right? I mean, in the past, we've always had this kind of, uh, you know, one step forward, two steps back kind of approach to alternative energy. It's like we're, we get very serious about it when there's a crisis, when prices spike, you know, and everybody's worried about, you know, how much gasoline is going to be. But, but then it kind of recedes when oil prices come back down. And what we've seen really in the last you know, 10 years or so 
is a very consistent push towards more renewables, regardless of what's happening with, with oil and natural gas prices. And so I, I think that's a change. And, and a lot of it's being driven by climate change concerns and policies and things like that. But, you know, and, and now it has become, uh, if you look at, at where the smart money's going on Wall Street, well, I mean, it remains to be seen if it's smart money, where the big money's going on Wall Street um, is, is largely into renewables and, and environmental uh, issues and away from fossil fuels. And that's, that's certainly a shift that we have not seen before. You wrote an article in Forbes about net zero, and I know that's something that my colleague Mike Niemer has talked about time and time again. Your thoughts on where we're at with the net zero and, again, how realistic is it and just kind of what you're hearing from folks that uh, are, are in that space. Yeah, well, net zero is kind of the new trend. Uh, you see more and more companies pledging to basically zero out their carbon emissions, uh, usually by 2050. That's kind of been the, the new area of focus. Uh, there was a lot of talk at the at the climate conference in Scotland late last year, and companies are sort of taking it on. The point of the article was many of these pledges that companies are making are not terribly realistic. A lot of them hinge on technology that has not been perfected, uh, such as carbon capture, and that is, I should say that has not been been done economically. And so, you know, it's unlikely that a lot of these goals are going to be met, especially for companies that produce fossil fuels. Uh, but more importantly, the, the, the real point of the article was it's kind of creating this uh, almost a, a sense of cover or a, a bit of a dodge for a lot of these companies because they can say, oh, we're doing this. We have this plan. And, and even though it, we know it's not going to work, you know, it, it kind of allows them to say that they're doing something. And it gives almost this false sense of security. And I think you're starting to see more and more climate scientists are starting to, to, to talk about the fact that, you know, even if we hit these net zero goals, it's probably not going to lower the temperature to the, you know, less than 2% Celsius that everybody's talking about, because quite frankly, the governments haven't done their part in making sure that their commitments are being honored either. And then look, I mean, these are really, really tough things to do. What you're basically talking about is if you're going to implement these policies and try to keep the temperatures below that 2% Celsius, 2 degrees Celsius level, you're really talking about adopting anti-growth policies and, and nobody wants to hear that. So it, it's a really, really tough situation. And barring some you know miraculous new technology, I, I don't really know how it's going to turn out. You look at these carbon offset programs and stuff like that, and it just, it, it hasn't had the impact that we, we thought or hoped that it would, up the, you know, so far. And there's really no indication. I mean, look, it, it, these are not bad programs. And that's, and that's the thing, everybody's a little hesitant to criticize net zero because we don't really have anything else, right? I mean, at least at least we're trying things, at least companies are trying to do something. And so, you know, carbon offset, I mean, yes, it's it's better than doing nothing, but it's not really getting us to where we need to be. So I think that's kind of the bigger concern is, is how do you, I mean, look, the biggest shift that we have seen towards reducing carbon was when we saw like in the United States where we shifted a big chunk, more, you know, almost 50% of our electricity generation from coal to natural gas. And, and, you know, if you go back to 2005, when George Bush was president, he said, we can't sign, I don't want to sign the Kyoto Protocols because it could have an economic, you know, a severe economic impact on the United States. And then by 2015, 10 years later, we had actually complied with the terms of that agreement, even though we never signed it because of, of the shift that was occurring with, with, you know, abundant natural gas supplies in the U.S. because of fracking and that kind of thing. That's actually been the biggest progress we've made. And it's sort of like, so what's the next thing? You know, what is the next technology that's going to, to be a real game changer in terms of carbon output? And I, I don't think we know what it is. And 
The problem is we don't have a lot of time to sort of sit around and wait for it to be developed. And, you know, when you look at fracking, I mean, that took, you know, 20 some years, right, for it to get from the idea to to viable, you know, practice. And and so I don't know if we have that. We're working on a project with a large energy company with regards to responsibly sourced gas, where they've got the third party monitoring the methane level and they're buying the production where the methane is a lower value than what the traditional one is in the United States. You know, typically the average well in the United States is 0.50% methane. You know, we're working on transactions are 0.05% methane, 90% less methane coming out. And it's creating quite a large carbon footprint reduction. It's gonna take a lot of those across the country to, to make a big difference. And I don't know if we have enough wells that can produce that lower methane. Do you have any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I, look, I think the methane thing is really fascinating because it's something that the industry ought to have a lot of incentive to do, right? I mean, it, you know, there's a value to methane and and you're just sort of letting it escape. And so, um, you know, certainly the, the larger companies, the ones with more financial resources have been, you know, pretty, pretty quick to step up and say, yeah, we're gonna try to do this. I think the bigger challenge is, is, is the smaller companies that don't necessarily have the resources um, and, and you're going to see, you know, that's actually my concern across the board as we talk about energy transition. You know, we've already seen the majors, uh, some of them starting to sell off oil and gas properties, particularly oil properties. Uh, you know, well, who's buying those? It's smaller companies. We saw this, you know, offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, right? Who, who started buying up all the shallow water wells when the majors moved into the deep water? Smaller companies with less financial resources. Well, what happens? They they have a harder time meeting all the requirements. The environmental restrictions are not necessarily monitored as closely. Obviously, I'm generalizing, but I mean that's the concern, right? And as if prices collapse, they're going to be harder hit by a downturn. And so uh, we've seen this happen in the coal industry, for example, where you know a lot of coal assets were sold off and and wound up you know in companies that went bankrupt. And so I think that kind of I've gone a long way from the methane question. I realized, but but I think that that you know there's this whole kind of broad based transition going on, and and there are certainly things that we can do to make it better. I think companies are looking at things they can do, which is good. You know, but but coming back to the methane issue, that's definitely something that seems very doable from a company standpoint, and it has a big impact because methane, obviously, a bigger greenhouse gas contributor than than carbon. You mentioned the oil and gas majors. Are you surprised at how they've kind of sheepishly kind of let the narrative get away from them a little bit? I'm really not because they always do that. You know, I mean, look, oil companies have a terrible time of sort of understanding how they're viewed in the public and communicating what they do. And, and you know, I always say that, that one of the big problems with the major oil companies is, yeah, you, you know, you see their signs at the gas pump, but but really the only other time you understand what they do is when something goes horribly wrong, right? When something blows up or, or things like that. And so they just don't do a very good job of sort of managing that message and they haven't for a very long time. And we saw this with the carbon transition too. I mean, they, you know, a lot of the majors ultimately came around to the idea of a carbon tax, but by the time they got to it, you know, everybody else was talking about, you know, cap and trade and things like that. And now we're, we're kind of coming back to the carbon tax discussion because everybody realized that cap and trade brings a lot more potential problems with it, I think. But, uh, you know, no, I think the majors are always a little slow to react, um, you know, and, and I think the one thing that, that may be different this time is that the majors are actually taking the lead on diversifying into renewables simply because they have the deep pockets and they can they can afford to do that. Um, and, and so, you know, that's probably a little different. 
but unfortunately, they have spent so many years as being, you know, the villain of environmentalists and stuff that even when they do that, it's sort of seen as very cynical and not not something that, you know, it's, it's, it, look, it's not a big part of their business, right? I mean, you know, Shell or BP or whoever can talk about buying up windmills, but the fact is they still make most of their money from oil and gas and probably will for a long time. So um, it's it's a hard it's a hard message to you know it's it's hard to sort of turn around that that sense of public opinion when when the oil industry has been such a convenient villain for so long. Piggybacking on top of that, as we look at this energy transition, what's going to be what's going to give? What do you see as being kind of the final way where finally both sides capitulate and say, okay, you know what, let's have our kumbaya moment, let's work together, or will we have that moment? I don't, I don't think we'll have that moment because there's there's too many incentives on both sides to not have it. Um, you know, I mean, look, the, the, like I said, there, there are going to be oil companies that are going to be more eager to embrace that change than others. There are some that are going to look at their business and say, I can make good money at this for another 30 years. And then, you know, as CEO, I get to retire. And so what do I care, right? Um, and, and, you know, look, we're going to need some companies doing that, as Elon Musk alluded to. Um, but I think on the environmental side, too, you know, you have to keep in mind that those organizations, like any organization, they have to perpetuate themselves and, you know, they need to raise money. And so there's always the next crisis, right? It's never, no matter what you do, there's always going to be something else that they're going to be trying to scare everybody about. And so I don't think either side really has a lot of incentive to come together. I know that's a, a very cynical view, but uh, it's just kind of what I've seen happen over the years. I think what will happen is policy will change. Look, climate change, the impact of climate change is going to be incredibly expensive, especially if we can't stop it, right? And so governments are going to have to start making policies, whether we like it or not, whether industries like it or not, they're going to have to start doing more stuff to, to prepare for this. And that's what's going to drive the transition. That and just sort of once you get over certain hurdles from a consumer standpoint, all of this stuff is just much more efficient and easier to deal with, right? I mean, look, we all love our cars and, you know, we like to, to be able to go fast and we like to be able to jump in our car and go wherever we want, right? But if you can get past the, the concern that I have, if, if, okay, first of all, I don't want to pay for an electric car if it's a lot more expensive. And I don't want to have to worry about, you know, getting stuck at, at you know, the restaurant because I don't, you know, I ran out of charge, right? Well, you know, if if recharging becomes as reliable as gas stations have um, and the price becomes more competitive, I mean, you know, look, an electric car, it's a lot cheaper to operate, right? I don't have all the maintenance. I don't have all the different parts. It's it's much simpler. It's more efficient. It can be a lot more fun to drive, actually. They accelerate a lot faster if they're allowed to do so. So I think that, that over time, we'll start to kind of embrace more of those ideas, but it's just a, a gradual process and a lot of little things have to happen. And, and, and the other thing, you know, that I think is, is you've got a new generation coming up that has a different view of cars too. Um, you know, for us, cars were a sign of independence, right? When you turn 16, man, you got your wheels and that was a big thing. And, you know, you see a lot of, you know, whatever the Gen Z or whatever we're into now, it's not as big a thing, you know? And, and, and so I think, you know, maybe we see an era where, you know, you have if you have electric vehicles, it's easier to operate them as fleets. So maybe ride sharing becomes a much bigger, you know, electric car autonomous vehicle ride sharing might become more of a thing with the next generation. There won't be that sort of mental resistance that we have to the idea of no, I gotta have my I gotta have my car, right? I, I gotta I, I feel stranded without it or whatever. So 
who knows? But I, I think that a lot of this stuff is going to come together because there's a lot of incentive to make it happen at this point. When you look at, uh, and you wrote an article about this for Texas Monthly as well, and, and we're efforting to get the folks from NetPower on the show, um, with what they're doing, you've got a power plant that is putting, what, carbon emission-free power on the grid. And I know uh, they had told you what, they liken this to the uh, what, what the Wright Brothers, uh, which I'll tell you yeah, what, yeah. Uh, if, just a little bit about that, what NetPower's doing, and what does that mean moving forward? And more importantly, what does it mean for this area here in Houston for the uh, being more of a hub for the energy transition? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting project. This company, NetPower, they're actually based in North Carolina, but they have a, a test plant in Laporte. So down kind of nestled amongst all the refineries and everything else, there's this plant. And, and they actually generate electricity by burning natural gas and pure oxygen. So that creates, uh, it produces CO2, but it's, it's superheated and that drives a turbine. And, and then the, the CO2 is basically recycled back through the system. So it's kind of like a loop. Uh, so they release very little CO2. Most of it is reused. And what little bit is produced is captured and sold for enhanced oil recovery or things like that. You know, there is a secondary market for CO2. And, and so they're trying to take advantage of that. The only other byproduct of the plant is water. So it's it's a really interesting thing. It's been done on a, you know, a relatively small scale, but enough that they could generate electricity and actually put it on the grid which they did late last year. And now they're looking at licensing these plant designs, some of which will be used for industrial customers for on-site generation, and some of which could be used for, you know, commercial power. I mean, for, for residential and, 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 you know, sort of putting general power on the grid. How quickly that happens, I mean, it's probably a few years away still before we see some of these plants up and running, but there's been a lot of interest in it. You know, this is not, I mean, these guys are backed by a number of big companies, Exelon, which is a major generating company, McDermott, which is as big in engineering and oil field services, and, and, and Occidental Petroleum, which primarily is interested in the carbon for the enhanced uh, recovery process. But, you know, these are big name companies that know what they're doing. And, and um, so it's gotten a lot of attention. As with anything else, you know, it just depends on, is it economical over the long term? You know, can they can they keep this generating process going, keep it sustainable, keep the costs in line? Um, they're very dependent on tax credits for carbon capture right now. Um, you know, obviously, if they if there were more favorable environmental legislation, if we had carbon pricing or something like that, it would probably work to their advantage. And they, and they also kind of need those CO two sales on the back end in order to make the numbers work, but. You know, I think it'll be a really interesting project to watch going forward as they get some of these plants up and running and kind of, uh, you know, work through some of those processes. It seems like something that could catch on over the years, you know, as we as we move forward. The only caveat I, I always give with this kind of stuff is, you know, we, we've seen a lot of these promises before, whether it's, you know, scrubbers on coal plants or uh, all kinds of other things that have been talked about. Figuring out something that works on paper or even on a small scale is one thing and actually making it industrial in scope is much harder. And then we'll get you out here with this. Again, you've been in the you've been in the state of Texas, what, 30 plus years now covering energy here in Houston. You know, we know what Houston is when it comes to oil and gas, and now we're seeing a lot more sustainability, renewable energy companies come to the forefront here to kind of dovetail what we talked about earlier about, you know, the two parties coming together. Could Houston help bridge that gap when it comes to, you know, bringing both sides together, at least, you know, like I said, I know you talked about policy being kind of the ultimate driver at the end of the day, but could Houston kind of still set the pace uh, for both sides here in the energy transition? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and yes, policy will be a big factor, but, you know, we will need entrepreneurship. We will need, you know, free market solutions to combine with that, as we saw with fracking, for example. Um, you know, it's not one side or the other. It's, it takes both. Um, but yeah, the great thing about Houston, I've always said, you know, Houston's a city of big ideas, right? And, and regardless of what it is, whether it's space exploration, oil and gas, you know, any form of energy. And one of the things that I think has been great about Houston for a long time is that, you know, the, the energy industry, you know, sort of throws off a lot of people over time that have really, really great ideas and they go out and start their own companies and they try different things. And you've seen that happen with the, the so-called green revolution. Um, you know, it, it, it has happened on, a, on an even larger scale. So there's a lot of people doing interesting things in Houston with battery technology, for example, with biofuels, with all these kinds of alternative um, energy sources, you know, solar power and things like that. It doesn't necessarily get a lot of attention, but there's a lot of work being done out there. And I, I do think that as much as Houston's past is tied to oil and gas, its future is going to be much more diverse. You're a U of H energy scholar. You've written five nonfiction books. You are you write for Forbes. I mean, I, I, I look. I'm just glad you took time out of your busy day just to sit down uh, with us two schleps to talk a little bit. Uh, tell the folks at home exactly. You know, just a little bit about Lauren Steffi and and kind of what's uh, what do you got on the horizon for 2022? Well, you know, I, I do juggle a lot of different things. You know, I write the Forbes blog for for U of H. Uh, I'm not the only one who does it. It's a it's a contributor based thing, but uh, but yeah, I mean that that kind of keeps me in the energy space. I do some writing for Texas Monthly. Um, I, I try to put out books on a on a regular basis. I actually just just released my first novel uh, a few months ago, so that was kind of a new a new thing for me. That uh, was a lot of fun. We'll see how that goes, but uh, yeah, I try to I try to stay busy. I mean, the great thing about Houston, about Texas, what I used to always tell people, you know, for for a number of years, I worked for Bloomberg, and I had a lot of bosses in New York, and they, they didn't understand Texas. And I, I used to tell them, you know, it's really simple. Texas is the land of big stories. And it's why I don't want to leave, because there's always more stuff to write about. And uh, so it's, it's just a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, we'll continue to be so. For a guy that's been doing this since back when we still read newspapers, and I know my guy Mike Niemer can appreciate this, how have you adjusted to where we're at now, where now we're more in a di digital space? And I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, having covered uh, crime in Beaumont, Texas, for a number of years. What uh, what exactly have you done to adjust? And I know, look, just like I said, going on your website, you've done some stuff with Vice TV. You've got some, some documentary series that you've done. But what's been the biggest... I guess for you, what's been the one common denominator throughout your entire journalism career? And what's probably the one biggest thing you had to change to adapt to where you are in 2022? Yeah, I guess the biggest common denominator is storytelling, right? I mean, you know, if you're in this business, you're drawn to good stories and you can look at it and see different ways you want to tell it or how you might approach it. And I think the great thing now is there's a lot more options. You know, you can do a podcast, you can do video, and, and these things can be done much more cheaply than they, they used to do and still be done at a, a relatively good quality. You know, the written word is is mostly read on screens now as, as opposed to on paper. I'm old fashioned enough that I still like, you know, a hard copy. Uh, Guilty. When I, when I can get it. But, Guilty. Uh, I hit print and I read it. <laughs> if it's not something I'm really interested in, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, that being said, I mean, I think that the new formats give a lot of flexibility. I mean, look, I, you know, the books that I've done, uh, I've also done some audiobooks, uh, which is kind of another new thing. And, and you know, that's something, and I was surprised, actually, I haven't done an audio version of the novel yet, and people are asking for it. They're like, well, when's it coming out in audio? And I, which I didn't, I didn't expect. So, 
Um, you know, I think the main thing is you have to be open to different different methods of storytelling, but but the storytelling itself is the same. And I, I guess for me, the transition was a little easier because, um, you know, the kind of the mid portion of my career, I, I worked for a newspaper in Dallas that went out of business. And then I joined this outfit called Bloomberg that nobody had ever heard of. But we really pioneered a lot of concepts of electronic journalism back in the 90s that, that kind of the rest of the industry even just now catching up with. And so it really kind of taught me to be open to other forms of storytelling and to, to not be afraid of, you know, whether it's video or, or audio or, you know, these other things that it can all work. Um, and, and you learn to tell stories across all platforms. And so I think that helped. Um, you know, when I came to the Chronicle to write a column, I mean, on the one hand, you know, writing a newspaper column, that's kind of old school, you know, print journalism. And I loved it. I loved the relationship with readers and, and what I was doing. But, you know, at the same time, I was also doing a blog and we, we played around with podcasts and things like that. So, um, you know, I've always tried to be open to other forms, of, you know, to do other things in my writing. And I think that's really that's really the secret to sort of surviving in this new world. What's the novel about? It's, uh, it was actually a lot of fun. It's set in a uh, in a small West Texas town, uh, right at the at the end of the the last millennium, uh, and uh, it, it basically the town's dying, as many West Texas towns are. They're trying to figure out the townspeople are trying to figure out how to how to keep things going, and so this uh, large semiconductor plant moves to town, and suddenly the locals are wondering, like, okay, what have we given up? You know, what are we selling? Are we selling our past basically to ensure a future? And it, it kind of looks at the culture clashes. People from California move in, and and you know the, the habits of, that newcomers often don't stop and pay enough attention to where they're where they're where they're moving to and why things happen the way they do. And of course, the locals are struggling with this idea of you know are we are we giving up everything we 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 believe in in order to to ensure a future? And so it was just a lot of fun. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a it's a very much a character driven novel, but I had a, a lot of fun doing it and um you know everybody always asks if there'll be another one and i i have another i have an idea for a sequel but i i don't know uh, we'll see if that happens or not. real quick lauren just tell the folks at home uh the best place to find all the works of lauren steffi and where they can find you on the old social medias go to my website it's uh, laurensteffi.com l-o-r-e-n-s-t-e-f-f-y.com and that's kind of the, the central hub for everything i've got going I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, yeah, you know, just about everything. I haven't quite figured out TikTok yet, but... Uh Thanks so much for that, Mr. Lawrence Steffi. Once again, great stuff from him, as always. And, of course, you can go to his website, laurensteffi.com. Follow him on all the social medias. You will be glad that you did. All right, as well, if you want to follow us here on the podcast, and we ask that you do, you can catch all the episodes over at Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and eRenew.net. And if you listen to us over on Apple Podcasts, and we know that a lot of you do, give us a five-star rating. Why? Because as we like to say, you'll learn more about the energy transition from the podcast than you knew about it before you stop by. Don't forget, too, we've got some great episodes coming up we had the Deloitte folks that we're very very excited about had some issues there at the end of the year your boy got COVID so again we're going to be back and better than ever but uh, we've got the Deloitte folks that we're going to be talking to at the end of the month very very excited about that little two-part series and uh, the great work they're doing over at Deloitte and then of course we've got Daniel Kratzer from Fractal EMS energy storage consulting and management and they do it better than anybody out there and I'm gonna tell you right now you will learn a ton from Mr. Kratzer and what is going on in the energy storage and you 
you're going to learn some new information about energy storage that I promise you, you did not know before. So definitely stay tuned for that. That's going to be a fun episode, very informative episode, and we're certainly looking forward to that. So big shout out, as always, to the entire eRenewable team, Mike, Ann, Roger, Al, and everybody here that makes it possible, you the listeners, and of course the guests as always. So for the entire team, this has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. Will you tell us when to live? Will you tell us when to die?